The HBO documentary series Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning is available to stream on Max. The Boston Globe's full investigative series is available at globe.com slash stewartcase. Before we begin, this episode contains some offensive language and descriptions of violence. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Boston recorded emergency 510. My, my wife's been shot. I've been shot. Where is this, sir? I, I have no idea. I'm off. I was just coming from Tremont, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital. It's 8.43 on the night of October 23rd, 1989. Where are you right now, sir? Can you indicate to me? No, I don't know. I don't know. He, drove, he made us go to an abandoned area. A man calls 911 from his car phone. He's lost somewhere in Boston. Okay, sir. Can you see out the windows? Can you tell me where you are, please? No. I don't know. I don't see any signs. Oh, God. Chuck Stewart is in the driver's seat. His wife, Carol, is next to him. She's seven months pregnant. Okay, has your wife been shot as well? Yes. In the head. Moments ago, they were at a nearby hospital, taking a birthing class, preparing to welcome their first child. Okay, so bear with me now. Stand by. Stay on the phone with me. Chuck's from the suburbs. He doesn't live around here. All he knows is that he's on the wrong side of Huntington Avenue. And he's scared. He's crossed over this main artery of a road, gone past the dividing line. On one side of Huntington Avenue, you've got prestigious hospitals and fancy museums. Now, he's on the other side, in a mixed-race neighborhood called Mission Hill, a place that people from the suburbs know to avoid. Okay, Chuck. Help's going to be on the way. Bear with me. Is your wife breathing? Gurgling. Chuck says a man with a gun forced him to drive here. The people that shot you, are they in the area right there? No, oh, they, they, they took off. Oh, they left. Okay. Carol is bleeding out in the front seat beside him. They're racing against an unforgiving clock. Oh, man. Jack. Jack, can you give me anything? Just look out the window. Can you see anything? Oh, I'm blanking out. You can't blank out on me. I, I need you, man. Jack. Jack. They're not the only people shot in Boston that night, but their story is the one that captures the attention of the nation for weeks. It will alter the image of Boston forever. It's something people here will be living with and talking about for decades to come. Topping News 7 tonight, a brutal attack on a pregnant woman and her husband as they left childbirth classes at a Boston hospital. The Stewart case was one of those news stories that exploded from inside your television set. Several police officers said tonight the stakes have changed in the street wars. I remember that evening saying whoever did this needs to go straight to hell. It was the ultimate urban nightmare. An innocent white couple with a baby on the way, shot in the heart of the city. We feel vulnerable because we are vulnerable. So many of us can see ourselves in the steward's car. This was one of the most sensational crimes in the city's history, and it was all captured on tape. In a time before smartphones and 24-hour cable news cycles, it went viral. From Boston tonight, we have a nightmare story of random crime and violent death. A near wipeout of a family that came into the suburbs. It is a dramatic and horrendous thing. The hunt for the attacker 
engulfed Boston for months. The crime and its aftermath exposed truths about the city and the country few wanted to confront. Race, class, crime and punishment. The city's raw nerves were exposed. Everyone thought they knew what happened, but what you believed depended on the lens you brought to it. Boston's simmering tensions were about to boil over. Everything is building up to this moment in terms of how we really felt about each other. And this was the stick of dynamite that finally went off. Like life switched just that fast. Nothing's going to be the same again. That's what I said to myself. I knew at that moment. You can't make this shit up. Oh, but they did make it up. My name is Adrian Walker. I'm a columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe. I was here when this happened. I saw it on the 11 o'clock news that night. And as a young reporter new to Boston, this was a holy shit moment. People were talking about race wars, martial law, the death penalty, all kinds of crazy stuff. They called the shooter an animal. As a transplant from Miami, I'd already been told that my experience in Boston would be different because I'm black. Back then, colleagues warned me to be careful going into certain neighborhoods, like South Boston. I'd covered crime in the city already, but this was different. I think it's the biggest embarrassment in the city of Boston, and they wanted to go away. But it never went away for me. I thought I knew this story inside out, but I've learned there's much more to it. Our team of Boston Globe reporters has been digging up all the old files and uncovering new investigative findings. How do you not come forward? Yeah, like in any minute, someone might come in and take these away. It's absolutely crazy. Stay with us. We're going to tell the story in a way it's never been told before. We're going to tell the story the right way. I still feel the coverage has never really been done properly. They don't have us who it happened to side of it. And it basically boils down because they didn't really give a shit about us. This podcast is a look at the quintessential Boston story, a place where race and crime, fact and perception, all collide in a tragic way. And it all begins in Mission Hill. I'm a speak upon. This is Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooter. Episode one, The Crime. I'm at 100% of agreement of being able to help document about something that should have been spoken so long ago. This just shows that what you put under the rug, it sticks out to someone cares like you guys to come pull it out, to be examined. And that's what I'm happy to be part of it. Don Juan Moses grew up in Mission Hill. Where this building is right now, where the third story is, that was a brick building. And we lived on the third floor. Uh, seven Racing Court, apartment 38 and 39, here in Mission Hill when it was projects and bricks. It's just, you can't forget this. What Don Juan sees walking around the streets these days is vastly different from what he saw when he was a kid here. Right now we have buildings, uh, community centers, much bigger. We have condos. It was not condos in, in townhouses. This was just uh, a dirt road. It was a big old parking lot, but there's dirt. But one thing feels the same the memory of the shooting of Chuck and Carol Stewart 
and everything around it continues to be embedded in this place and its people. It's certainly still alive here for him. Telling you the truth now, looking at that building, Horizon Buildings, it, it, you can't ever forget that right there with that case. That's Charles Stewart case all day, those buildings. No matter what situation changed around it, those buildings are still there. Don Watts in his mid-40s now. I am 6'5", African-American, brown eyes, very passionate about everything I do. He's a personal care worker in a hospice up in Maine. And my hat says love. There's a million hats of everything that's out there, but I'd rather be what you wear. Don Watts actually got a bunch of these hats. He buys them here, and he drives them back up to Maine. He gives them out to the hospice patients in his care. I come back home to buy them. That's what I'm doing this weekend. If I can give it to those that's passing, let them know that they are, they're going to die with love. He's proud of how far he's come from these streets. Grandpa gave me a challenge before he died. He said, be what you never had. Let it be seen through your actions, your clothes, and your words. So I became love, something I never had. And I helped kids in my state. He said that you could become what you went through or overcome it. His grandpa was talking about Don Juan's childhood in Mission Hill. Don Juan is the only one of his eight siblings who didn't go to prison. First one to touch foot of college, first one to graduate high school, or a second one after my brother, his high school diploma came in the mail after he got murdered. It's no accident that this is where the murder happened. All you had to tell somebody is where you came from, where you lived. Mission Hill Projects, all right, I know who you are. You already got a label. But let's back up, because Mission Hill has been a whole bunch of different neighborhoods over the years. It's like an archaeological dig. More than 100 years ago, this is where Irish, German, and Italian immigrants settled. It was working class and deeply religious. There's a big Romanesque revival church right in the heart of the neighborhood known as Mission Church. Anywhere you stand in the neighborhood, you can see its spires. People understand the geography of Mission Hill in relation to this church. This is uh, Tremont. Yeah, Tremont, because the Mission Church is up the street. The public housing projects, called Mission Main, were built between 1938 and 1940. At first, the residents were pretty much all white. By the early 60s, white people were leaving the city in droves and heading for the suburbs. Meanwhile, there was a huge influx of Hispanic people from Puerto Rico and black Southerners looking to flee racial terror in their own towns. Many started settling in Mission Hill, and by the 80s, the neighborhood had flipped to being mostly black and Hispanic. Lots of people talk about that time in really nostalgic terms. It was just a happier time. People looked out for one another. You know, it still had the vibe where Miss Rudolph could tell Joyce Johnson's child to stop that. I'm gonna tell your mother, you know? It was a community. Everybody kind of knew you. You know, you knew, the kids knew the kids, the mamas knew the mamas. Christine Norwood came to Mission Hill as a little girl in 64. She loves the place now, and she loved it back then. People were outside, kids were playing, you know? Children were outside riding their bikes and playing and sliding up and down the cellars. All the apartments had stairs leading from the sidewalk down to the cellars. And then on each side was a slant so that they had packages they could slide them down. Okay? Now the kids get cardboard, 
plexiglass, anything, and they slide down the cellar. Well, when you slide down the cellar, at the end of the cellar is a brick wall. <laughs> okay? So no mother wants you playing in the cellar. A lot of kids, no teeth. But all that changed in the mid-'80s when crack arrived. A major dealer from New York set up shop in Boston, and that was it. Crack was everywhere, along with heroin and cocaine. And the bit of sweetness of the early 80s was just gone. Back then, it was easy to walk on the street and catch a crowd of guys. And if you wanted whatever it is they were selling, you could go up there and get what you wanted. That's the Mission Hill that Don Juan's mom moved to. It's like being entered into a jungle because it was so chaotic. Don Juan was 11, a kid trying to understand the world, but growing up too fast. My mom always told me, be home before the street, like, I don't want nothing to happen to you. You got drug dealers every other corner, stuff hidden inside trees. They got kids being mules. I remember when I, was, I turned 12, the guy told me, just watch this tree. I'll give you 200 bucks. Just stand here and watch this tree. I didn't know what he was talking about or what it was, but I went home and told my mom about, the, about what just happened. She was like, and brought me back to the corner and said to the guy, don't ever do that again. I, I didn't even know what I did wrong. All I know, I was standing next to a tree not realize that I was uh, I was playing possum for someone's stash, not knowing. I was just a kid, so it was crazy at that time. And uh, walking through, you know, you got undercover cops, you got gangs moving back and forth, everybody belligerent, drinking, you know. It was hard being a kid at that age. Don Juan tried to stay out of it. He said his basketball was his best friend. And when he wasn't on the court, he was squirreled away in the library. I was running from kids not to get jumped, but I was sitting there and reading. And I just, I just stay in there and just read. Just stayed. I don't even know. I just, the books talk to you. But by the late 80s, the violence was all around him. There was no way to escape it. And that's where the two heroin addicts fought in the alleyway and the bullet shot through the window. The bullet tore through his family's apartment. It would have caught me in the forehead if I didn't kneel down to change the channel when I did. So people used to do think, wait right there at the corner for people to come down this hill, mug them, and then run back through there. A Caucasian man was in that trash can, in that dumpster. All I noticed was by his, his legs and his shoes. That was the first dead body I think we ever witnessed. My whole dream was just to make it to 21. I didn't think I would make it. Between the police and the street? Nuh-uh. As he walks through his old neighborhood, Don Juan catches sight of somebody he grew up with. They embrace. What's up, man? I'm a survivor. Oh, how you feeling, man? I'm living, man. How you living? I'm living. It's been a while, man. It's been a while, baby. I'm glad you still recognize it, brother, man. His friend is wearing a bright orange hoodie that reads, I survived the 90s. You see his shirt? I survived the 90s. I'm definitely getting a shot with him. I'm definitely getting a picture with him. I survived. Oh, my God. Don Juan's old friend carries with him some of the same painful history of the neighborhood. His cousin got shot and killed over here, in this building over here. So this is Mission Hill in the summer of 1989, just before the Stewart shooting. It's a pretty brutal place, but it's also full of people like Don Juan who are just trying to make it through alive. 
No one has ever asked Don Juan about his story. Like many people we talked to for this podcast, Don Juan didn't think it mattered. After all, he had nothing to do with the Stewart shooting. He was just an 11-year-old kid. I never thought it would mean anything. I just thought it was something in my archives that I had to just keep and see it as a layer of skin that I made it through it. But everything that is about to be set in motion with Chuck Stewart's 911 call will directly impact folks like Don Juan and Christine Norwood. Everyone in Mission Hill has a story from that time. It was the beginning of what would come to be called Boston's Hot Summer. Throughout this summer of 1989, police and city officials took the offensive with an aggressive campaign against Boston's gangs. Senseless violence generated by the frightening plague of drugs and guns in our society. Boston's gang warfare appears to be heating up, and the city's neighborhoods are feeling the burn. This wasn't totally new. The previous summer, a young girl was killed in another part of the city, caught in crossfire between rival gangs. Tiffany Moore, at 12, became an unwitting victim of drugs, thugs, and Boston's turf warfare. And it wasn't just Boston. In the spring of 89, a jogger was attacked in Central Park and five black teens were blamed for the crime. And in New York City, after a Central Park rampage of assault and rape by a pack of youths, police have learned a new term, wilding. There was an almost hysterical concern about violence in the so-called inner city. And really, city and suburbs were just a proxy for black and white. And all of this violence seemed to be connected to drugs. This, this is crack cocaine. The month before Chuck Stewart would make his desperate 911 call. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Then-President George H.W. Bush addressed the nation. Our most serious problem today is cocaine, and in particular, crack. Who's responsible? Everyone who uses drugs. Everyone who sells drugs. And everyone who looks the other way. So, in 1989, the city and the country were on edge. Fear had helped propel so many families, just like Chuck and Carol Stewart's, to the suburbs. Everyone believed there was safety outside the city. And by October of 89, the Stewart's were firmly settled in, preparing their home for a baby. They pulled their blue Cressida into the parking garage at Bergman Women's Hospital on a crisp evening. This was the most prestigious maternity hospital in the city and also the most popular. Half of Boston was born here. It is on the fancy side of that Huntington Avenue dividing line, just a couple blocks away from the heart of Mission Hill. I, like Carol, uh, was pregnant in 1989, expecting my first child. Kim Woodward and her husband were in the same birthing class that night, along with about 10 other couples. We had been in the class just weeks, maybe three, four weeks. And we all felt like we were at that point where, okay, this is getting closer. And they said, you could bring your pillows next week. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is real. Kim and her husband also lived in the suburbs. We were all on the same boat, sitting there with our big bellies and our babies and all the promise of what that meant and, you know, what we were planning and what was coming up. In class, she sat next to the Stewarts. Carol, in a white sweatshirt, with her shoulder-length brown wavy hair, stood out. I don't think I asked any questions. I didn't know what to ask. 
but Carol had a lot. She said, my doctor said I may need to have a C-section. So she had a lot of questions. Kim noticed Chuck, too, for a different reason. Her husband sat next to me, and I thought he was so nervous. He just really was out of it. And I was laughing with Steve on the way home. I said, that poor guy, he's so nervous. He's gonna, can you imagine what he's going to be like on you know, Labor Day when he has this baby? The class ends around 8.30 p.m., and the couples head home in their cars. Around the same time, a couple miles away in the South End, paramedic Rich Serena is hard at work. It was actually a very crazy busy day. There was a fire at a high-rise that morning, and then a major car crash on the Tobin, the bridge that connects the city to the northern suburbs. It was like cars hanging over the bridge. Rich was in his 20s, just a couple years on the job at that point. He grew up in Boston and knew the streets well. It had already been a long day when dispatch called. And said, hey, do you want overtime tonight? And it's like, yes, absolutely, you know, take some overtime. And this was a bit of a special assignment. They said, well, it's going to be probably taken around the Rescue 911 crew. It's like, yeah, okay. That's Rescue 911. It was a popular new TV show. Its crew went from city to city, chasing ambulances and filming first responders in action. The show offered a blood and guts look inside real ambulances and ERs. The footage that follows is not a recreation. It was taped during a ride-along with the Boston Emergency Medical Service. So Rich has a camera crew with him in his emergency vehicle. This is critical and could be a blessing or maybe a curse. Because either way, Boston's biggest crime is largely captured by a TV crew. I had this film crew sitting next to me and wired and mic'd up. At first, the action is pretty routine. There's a stabbing in the South End, not the kind of drama the TV crew is looking for. Then... I'm on Mass Ave and I start hearing down by City Hospital, you know, the reports. It was just something really different that was going on. The dispatcher working that night sends out a call to emergency crews, including Rich's. A blue Toyota Cressida. This comes in from a cellular phone. He's supposed to be shot. His wife is also shot at Huntington and Tremont. Emergency dispatchers have a general sense of where Chuck and Carol are, not far from the hospital, somewhere in Mission Hill. But Chuck can't say exactly where. I can't move. Oh, God. Chuck, can you see anyone on the street? Pull over. I'm looking, I'm looking. There aren't too many people. Okay, calm down. Just hang in with me. I'm going to have assistance right there to you. Open the door and talk to anyone that passes by, my friend. Anybody at all. I want to talk to somebody. Find out exactly where you are. The boss police dispatcher is trying to locate where they are. And so they, they have a general sense of Brigham Circle, you know, and, but that's a large area. Chuck, we're on the way, but you've got to tell me a little better where you are. I need a little better location to find you immediately. Chuck, can you open the door? Yeah. Oh. Where are you shot, Chucky? Hello, Chuck? Chuck, can you hear me, Chuck? I lost. I lost. Precious seconds are ticking by, and Chuck has gone silent on the line. Come on, Chuck, I can hear you breathing. Can you hear me, Chuck? Pick up the phone. Several police cars are searching the area for the couple. The dispatcher, still on the phone, has an idea. Hey, wait a minute. You hear the siren? I can hear a siren. Chuck isn't talking, but the dispatchers can hear police sirens through the phone. They realize they can use the sirens to locate the couple. 
turn on your, your sirens and turn them off so they could hear through the cell phone where they were on the fly to triangulate exactly where this is and where the police cars were. 911, put on your siren now. Negative. Negative on the siren. Bravo, K-1. Sound your siren. Not yet, no siren. Bravo, K-1. Shut off your siren. Bravo, 1-4. Sound your siren. And then, on the fourth or fifth try. Definite location. We heard the sirens. We've located McGreevy and Santa EMS and Boston police arrive at the same time. The crowd is already starting to gather. And there was the car. They were both still in the car. He was in the uh, driver's seat. She was in the passenger side. Serino and another paramedic get to work. Kevin and I stayed with Chuck and started taking care of him. He kept saying over and over, you know, you know, don't take care of me. Take care of my wife. Yeah, somebody got people taking care of her. Their injuries are dire. He had a pretty significant gunshot wound. You know, she had a gunshot wound to the head. We wanted to make sure that the baby gets to the hospital. You want to try to keep the mother alive. You have a woman who's in cardiac arrest. The horrific incidents, you, you don't stop to say, oh, this is horrific. You just go in and take care of people. You're an autopilot at that point. When I got there, the scene was pure pandemonium. Evan Richmond was the first photographer there. I was kind of the junior man, and I was working the late shift. He was working for the Boston Herald and had been listening to the police radios. And by the time the police dispatcher broadcast the location of the incident, I was only a couple blocks away. He followed an ambulance to the scene. People were leaning inside the front windows of the car. Obviously, the EMTs were leaning in to, to assist the victims. TV cameras captured Evan there in the fray. You can even hear the click of his camera. Evan, you got that one? Push back in, you're going to jail. Push back. He's so focused on taking pictures that he barely registers the tragedy unfolding in front of him. When you're taking a picture in a fast-moving news situation like that, uh, you're not always looking at exactly what you're photographing. You're thinking about the technical aspects, the focus, the composition, the exposure. I wasn't really looking directly at it like you would looking at a photograph. I was thinking about a lot of different things, trying to capture that image on film. He doesn't know it yet, but he has memorialized a moment that will not only depict the horror of the crime, but come to define the worst of Boston. It was all focused around a car, and um, I made a few frames of the car. It's a close-up. The dark of the night lit up by a flash. It's as if you are sitting right on the hood of the car, looking straight through the windshield. Carol Stewart is slumped to her side. Her white sweatshirt is splashed with blood. Her dark, wavy hair covers the worst of it. And Chuck, he's in the driver's seat, leaning back and grimacing, the white of his teeth in sharp contrast to the bib of dark blood on his shirt. Did you know whether they were alive? Uh, the, the woman seemed like she wasn't, or barely. She was in grave condition. I think that was evident. The, the man in the driver's seat was squirming around, um, making faces like he was injured, but he was evidently alive. 
It's an image that we will still be talking about decades later. You cut seatbelts, you cut his clothes off. Uh, we went to get Carol out first, um, and we were able to get him out uh, shortly thereafter. The rescue 911 footage shows all of it. Blood, pain, panic. After Chuck's stretcher is loaded into the ambulance, a police officer leans over and speaks with him. It's hard to make out, but the officer asks, who did this? Chuck says, black man. One guy, two guys. What do Black man. Black man. Any stripes on it? What color? Chuck tells the cop the shooter was wearing a tracksuit with stripes on it. He doesn't offer much else, but it's enough to cement the image of the main suspect. That footage shooting at uh, McGreevy in uh, San Alfonsis. Black male, 30 years of age. Black running uh, suit with a white stripe. Chuck and Carol are taken to different hospitals. Carol goes back to the hospital they had left just minutes ago. Chuck goes to a trauma unit elsewhere. While all this was unfolding, a man named Louis Elisa is at an event at a Masonic Lodge in Boston, an all-black fraternal organization. We were all there at Prince Hall, 25 Washington Street. The room was filled with people. And uh, we were having this really important ceremony. Lewis is one of Boston's leading civil rights activists, president of the Boston branch of the NAACP, and well acquainted with the powers that be in town. I was a Mason, and I'm still a Mason, uh, in Prince Hall Grand Lodge. And a number of brothers in my lodge, members in my particular lodge, were police officers. All of a sudden... Their police radios start going off. Everybody's getting called in. One of the officers tells Lewis what's going on. And he says there's a car that was hijacked by a person they believe to be a junkie, and he shoots the wife and the husband. Right away, Lewis knew this would not be a routine investigation. He explained that there's been a shooting, and they thought that the black person involved. I said, really? I said, so, you know, of course, I'm in my tuxedo, and I'm going out to his car. I said, take me to the station. They went to Area B, a police precinct not far from the crime scene. So we come back to B2, the old station, and, you know, I get out the car and I go in. And I see all these police piling in. It looks like one of those things that used to happen back to the civil rights days or in the Vietnam demonstration days. These guys, they got shields, they've got these batons, you know, they got shotguns. And I'm like... What? (laughs) And so I go in on the first floor, and there's the desk. And then behind the desk, I think, is the uh, night commander's space. And and I said, you know, who's in charge here? And they said, well, the mayor's in the back. Mayor Ray Flynn. He'd been Boston's mayor for two terms, and he had a habit of going to high-profile crime scenes like this. He and his boyhood friend, Police Commissioner Mickey Roach, were at the station giving orders. And I looked at Mickey. I said, what are we doing here? The mayor's bodyguard tried to shoo Lewis away. He says, you know, you don't need to be in here. This is not something that, you know, that you have anything to do with. I said, well, apparently it is because I heard that you've accused, you know, your guy's accusing a black person of shooting some white woman in the head. You know, I said, Ray, you need to take 10 Mississippi. You need to stop. 
I said, you're running in the wrong direction. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. After failing to convince the mayor to slow down, Lewis appealed to Boston's top cop. I turned to Mickey Roach and I said, Mickey, you're the commissioner. I never forget that. I said, you know this doesn't feel right and it doesn't sound right. He says, what am I going to do, Lou? I, you know, he's the mayor. I was at the, uh, the hospital tonight, and the priest was there saying a prayer, and it makes you, uh, breaks your heart to see this kind of situation. Mayor Flynn rushed to Brigham and Women's Hospital, where Carol was clinging to life. Uh, it's a tragic uh, situation that uh, everybody's heart goes out to the family. Flynn held a hasty press conference late that night. He wore a green Boston police warm-up jacket and stood next to one of Roach's top deputies. My understanding is that the uh, female is in serious condition, and as is the male, and I cannot comment further on the condition, I just don't know. We understand that she was pregnant, and they were able to save the baby through My understanding is that uh, delivery was made of the child. And the condition of the child? Uh, I don't know the condition of the child. Carol's baby was delivered by cesarean section that night. He was named Christopher. Both of his parents were in critical condition at the time of his birth. Chuck was in surgery, and Carol, she died hours later. It's another example of, uh, of uh, the availability of guns that, uh, that are so frequent. Uh, seems like it's happening every single day. Full investigation underway. We have no suspects in custody. We do have a description of a uh, assailant. At the press conference, Mayor Flynn turned the shooting into a citywide emergency, just in time for the 11 p.m. news. I've asked the commissioner, just I was talking to him a little while ago, I've asked him to put every single available detective in the city of Boston on this case to find out who the people, a person who was responsible for this uh, cowardly, senseless uh, tragedy. Every single available detective. There were shootings in Boston almost every night back then. But this was different. From the moment it happened, the Stewart case, as it came to be known, was considered an exceptional act of violence. Authorities have identified the woman as Carol Stewart of Reading. Doctors managed to save their baby, performing an emergency cesarean section. The baby is also in critical condition tonight. It led the news that night. And around that time, Herald photographer Evan Richman was back in the newsroom. His film had been whisked away from the scene and developed by a colleague. He hadn't even seen the photos yet. I went down to the press room when they're, when they're just starting to print the papers, and I, I got one. He was one of the first to see the front page. It was shocking to see. It was very shocking to see. It, it's tough to look at. It's such a gruesome picture. Chuck and Carol in the front car seats, covered in blood. Carol in the process of dying. Even by tabloid standards, the picture is extraordinarily graphic. In the morning, the entire city of Boston will see the gory crime scene. And in the days to come, they'll hear the dramatic 911 call again and again. Today, we've got phones and video cameras in our pockets. But back in 1989, you just didn't see a brutal killing like this 
up close. The murder of Carol Stewart on Mission Hill Monday night is forcing all of us to confront something awful and real about life in our city in 1989. Residents here are expressing another emotion, fear. Fear of a big city that's becoming increasingly violent and whose tentacles are now reaching far out into quiet suburban communities. It terrifies white Boston and unnerves black Boston. I just knew from that moment on that everything was going to be different. This story would be like no other I've ever seen. This story taps into a primal American fear, that of an innocent white woman, pregnant no less, dead at the hand of a black man. In Mission Hill, Don Juan remembers the impact was immediate. You said a black man did it. That's all we need to know. Raid the project, flood the projects, get everybody out. I want lineups regularly. I want them to be able to tell us which one looks like who and so forth. That's all they was in mindset for. It's out of the news, but it's still in my head. Soon police will knock down doors and strip search young men. They'll lead a massive manhunt. With Chuck's description, virtually every black male in Mission Hill is a suspect. And then the district attorney ups the ante, appearing on a nightly talk show and calling for the death penalty. Now the chase is on. Who did it? So you knew right away that with the story about the black man jumping in the car, they were going to tear apart Mission Hill. Oh, hell yeah! That's on the next episode of Murder in Boston. I'm a speak upon. Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooting, is presented by the Boston Globe and HBO Documentary Films. This podcast was reported and written by Globe journalists Evan Allen, Elizabeth Coe, Andrew Ryan, and me, your host, Associate Editor Adrian Walker. The project was led and also co-written by Assistant Managing Editor Brendan McCarthy and the Globe's Head of Audio, Kristen Nelson. Nelson served as Senior Producer. Melissa Rosales is the Associate Producer. Our theme music is Speak Upon It by Boston's own Ed O'Jimmy. Reza Daya is our sound designer. Voiceover direction by Athena Carcanas. Research from Jeremiah Mannion. Fact-checking by Matt Mahoney. The Globe's Executive Editor is Nancy Barnes. Thanks to former Globies Brian McGrory and Scott Allen and to Boston Globe Media CEO Linda Henry. Additional interviews and audio courtesy of Jason Hayer and Little Room Films. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Allison Cohen on the HBO podcast team. The HBO documentary series Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning is available to stream on MAPS. Murder in Boston.